I'm going to read to you the closing section. Um, we're not going to read the doxology or the final greetings, but I will read uh, verses 10 through 20 of Philippians chapter 4. This section of Scripture, guess what? It's talking about money. It's talking about giving. It's talking about giving to the work of the Lord. So we're going to be talking about money for a little while because I think this is what God has for us to be thinking about and talking about as the exposition of Scripture unfolds and leads us to these themes. I think the Lord's leadership is behind the scenes prompting us to think about giving, about giving money, about giving ourselves to the Lord's work. Follow as I read verses 10 through 20. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know that how to be brought low, I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. You know, this morning we're going to talk about giving. We're talking about it biblically. We're talking about it from God's Word. And God's Word has a lot to say about money, and it has a lot to say about our treasure and about how to give it to the Lord. You see, the title of my sermon is Giving Worships Jesus. When you're giving with the right heart, it's worship to God. Now, if you were to go into Barnes & Noble or a bookstore or look online for money help or how to manage your household and finances, you could find a lot of literature on that. There's a lot of talk about money. There's a lot of talk in our society and culture about amassing wealth and fortune. And your money gurus will say things like this. They'll say, look, your money, how you handle it, what you have, your resources... They say everything about how you live your life. They'll say something like this. The amount of money that you have, it determines everything about your life. It, it'll determine your happiness. It'll determine um, how you feel about life. It'll determine what you get to do and what you don't get to do. And on the surface, there's some principled truth to that. But beneath the surface, I want to take it one level deeper and say this. The reason God's word talks about money as much as it does is because money reveals everything about you. It shows where your heart is, what you value, what you invest in. Your money also, secondly, and I want you to pick up on this, it shapes who you're becoming. 
Let me, let me clarify what I mean by that. What you give towards will shape what you love. What you invest in, where you invest your money, it will shape and guide and mold who you are becoming. Because as you give money, you're really giving a part of you towards something. Let me clarify it with the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Jesus said these words, which you've heard before. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, I've heard that verse, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, preached uh, to say, listen, you know, where you give your money reveals where your heart is. It's a revelation. You know, look at your checkbook and just look at what you've been giving towards, and that's where your heart is. But I think Jesus takes it one level deeper, and so does Paul in the text we're going to be looking at. And that is to say that what you give towards or where you make your investments will, will shape the affections of your heart. In other words, if you lay treasure up in heaven, your heart goes to heaven. If you give your treasure to the world, your heart is vested and invested into the world. Well, let me give you an example of that. If you give to a family that's in need, that you know has a real need, and you have a heart for them, and you give them your money, then your heart is going to that family. It, it helps you pray for them. It helps you love them. It makes you a loving person. It shapes the affections of your heart. If you give to something like Crisis Pregnancy Center, because your heart is going out to women in need, your heart is being shaped and transformed through that process. I mean, if I reverse the analogy with a sort of a graphic idea, I heard someone talk about uh, World War II um, Nazis and how they um, killed Jews and, and they executed them in mass and in the millions. And the slogan surrounding that kind of genocide act was something like this. Hate the Jews, so you kill the Jews. And you flip it around, kill the Jews so that you'll hate the Jews. In other words, it's the idea that by doing something horrible over and over again, it hardens your heart to hate them even more. If you reverse this in terms of love, the more that you're giving your heart in love as an active obedience to the Lord and as a gift offering of an affectionate gift to other people self-sacrificially, your heart is going to them and it is building love in your heart. In other words, giving helps you grow spiritually. Giving helps your heart grow in the Lord. It's a spiritual discipline. It's not something you just do that's practically done as listed on a spreadsheet where you see a need and you meet a need. No, it's an offering of worship to the Lord where you're trying to put your heart in heaven with Jesus. That's what giving is. Turn over to Philippians. Let's find out the way that Paul shaped this in the closing words of his letter. Again, Paul loved this flock. They were good friends of his um, from way back when. He was with this church 10 years earlier at Philippi as he evangelized it. 
he met, you'll remember the story in you know, Acts 15, 16, and 17. Uh, Paul, at first, it was on his second missionary journey, found Lydia and a band of women praying beside the river. And Lydia came to faith in Christ. The Lord opened her heart. Then Paul evangelized. He was with Silas at that point on the second missionary journey. He evangelized a demonized woman who was a fortune teller. She came to Christ. It messed up the business um, that some business owners had. So they caused a, a riot scene. And ultimately, Paul and Silas were thrown into prison. They praised the Lord through the night, rejoicing in the Lord always. The doors flung open, and the Philippian jailer came to Christ, and then they went home with him. And the Philippian jailer's wife and kids came to faith in Christ and were all baptized. And so this church was born with these people. That was 10 years before Paul had written this letter back to them. He loved them deeply, and he's rejoicing in verse 10. On, on paper, but just out loud, exuberantly rejoicing because he was finding out that this church was still growing. Let me fill in a little bit more context. You've got this Philippian church that was evangelized by Paul. And then if you were to read through the storyline in Acts, Paul and Silas and Timothy, they, went, they left the church at Philippi and went to Thessalonica and did some Christian work, growing a church there. And then after that, they went to Berea. And then after that, they went to um, Corinth. And I, or actually, uh, Paul went to Athens and Mars Hill and did some evangelism work. Then they went to Corinth, and Silas and Timothy caught up with them there. Well, through that time, five years passed. And during that time, there was some correspondence and connection with the church at Philippi. And the primary correspondence surrounded the fact that Philippi wanted to meet Paul's needs on the mission field. I find this in chapter 4. Look at verse 15. He says, or start in verse 14, he said, Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, this is at the beginning of the second missionary journey, in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, that's leaving them at Philippi, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, this is early in the missionary journey, in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So Paul was filled up in his heart because he knew that this church had given to, given to him. But let me, let me just broaden what happened. Remember, there was a whole other missionary journey that Paul endeavored upon, embarked upon. That's the third missionary journey. And at the end of that missionary journey, Paul gets hauled off to Rome and is in Roman imprisonment. That's, what he's, that's when he's writing this letter back to them. And, Paul, and, and what had happened is a span of five years took place from the time the second mission, missionary journey ended and the third missionary journey ended. So it had been 10 years since Paul had had vital personal contact with the church at Philippi. And he's rejoicing greatly. Why? Because there was a knock on the door, and Epaphroditus, this pastor, 
probably someone who Paul had raised up at that church to be a spiritual leader, shows up. Now, look, we're not in modern times. For Epaphroditus to show up in Rome all the way from Macedonia is a massive journey. It's a once-in-a-lifetime trip where he put his life on the line. line. He nearly died in the process, coming there, dying of sickness. Bad things happen when you travel like this. It was a risk-taking journey, and Epaphroditus shows up. It had been 10 years since they had had personal contact five years since Paul had any contact with them at all and Epaphroditus shows up with a gift and says hey brother we heard that you're still on the mission field and we want you to know we still love you we're still praying for you we're still with you and we're giving you this gift and we want it to touch your heart at that moment was Paul counting the money and say, hey, how much did they give me? You know, I do have some tangible need. I mean, uh, you know, his imprisonment wasn't government subsidized. He was there um, in house arrest. No, you know what Paul was doing? He was rejoicing that he knew that the church at Philippi was still growing. It was still going. He knew that this church still loved him. And what that meant to him was that he knew that that church was still growing and he wanted to end his letter to the Philippians by saying I'm so thankful for this gift because it is not the gift that matters it's the revelation behind that gift what that gift means matters to him and it meant that they were growing well look this is how I framed uh, the text and I've, I've framed it in an outline that will cover several weeks to come but I want to ask the question, why should you give? You should ask yourself, why should I participate in giving? What's the big deal? You know, the church will kind of go on with my money or without my money. Why should I participate? Why should I join into this endeavor? I want to try to answer that question with the text. Verses 10 through 13, first of all, you should participate in giving because giving, that's worship, is never based on manipulation. I mean, Paul, in these first verses here about giving wants to make very clear that he's not trying to manipulate the church to give him money. Church giving should never come with strings attached to your gift, and you should never feel coerced to give money because giving is worship. It's worship. If you look down at verse 18, at the end of the verse, Paul calls it a fragrant offering, a sacrifice. It's like an like what the Old Testament sacrifices were, in the New Testament, we give gifts to the Lord as worship sacrifice to please Him. That's why. You should participate in the offering time or giving online or other, other times. You should participate in that spiritual discipline because it worships the Lord. That's what Paul is doing here, and he wants to rejoice with them. Look at verse 10. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. And what Paul is doing here, I guess on first blush um, reading, you might think, man, he's giving a subtle rebuke or he's trying to chide them because they had sort of forgotten about him or whatever. That's not the case at all. Just like I told you, he was five years on the mission field in that second missionary journey, and actually Philippi was the only church at that time supporting him. So they gave a couple gifts to Paul, that church alone. And then he kind of went off the grid for five years on the third missionary journey. And 
he was saying that this church had no opportunity to give to him because they had no idea where he was. I mean, we're not in modern media and technology days. He was across the world serving the Lord. And the idea and impression here is that as soon as the church picked up on where Paul was in Rome, they gave. They sent Epaphroditus with a gift to help him out. So somehow word of mouth got back that where Paul was and they sent Epaphroditus and got it done. And Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. I mean, I was on fire about this because now at length, now over 10 years, I've understood that you are growing in the Lord. You've revived your, your concern. The word revive here is like a blooming shrub. It's the idea that when I received that gift, I knew that there was this sort of blooming and blossoming relationship where I knew you were thinking about me and I'm thinking about you and we are connected together. Hey, let me just practically apply this for a second. It's like on Mother's Day. I mean, if you're thinking about not calling your mom or, you know, not sending her something or whatever, um, you know, rethink that because... That's all a mom wants. Uh, my mom, when I sent her, uh, you know, flowers or whatever, I mean, she cared about the flowers, but she cared most of all about the fact that our relationship was connecting with the fact that she is my mom, right? That's what Paul was experiencing here. It's connecting with people. You make the phone call. You take them out to dinner. You send the flowers. Why? Because you want your heart to connect with somebody, and you want to ha- send an expression of love to them. That's what Paul is flipping out over here. That's what he's excited about. He says, you were concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. The idea is as soon as you did, you gave me something. Look at verse 11. He says, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. What's Paul doing? Well, first of all, he's affirming the church saying giving was based on the right heart attitude. You gave because it was the right thing to do. But secondly, he wants to make sure that the church in no way feels coerced to give Paul more money. In fact, he wants to sort of disassociate the money as, a, as the, you know, the practical um, you know, need-meeting agent. He wants to disassociate that from their heart behind it. He wants to make sure that they understand that Paul was content and his needs were met spiritually even without the money because he doesn't want them to feel coerced. He doesn't want to be the missionary that's saying, look, you know, thank you for the gift and I, I really wish you gave me some more. I mean, Paul is not doing that at all. In verse 11, he's saying, I'm not speaking of being in need. Like, the reason I'm rejoicing isn't that you gave me money and I want more. The reason I'm rejoicing is because of your heart behind the gift. He doesn't want to be misread. He he doesn't want his motivations to be misread or misunderstood. He wants to protect his motivations, and he wants to affirm their love behind the gift. How does he do this? He's, in essence, um, you know, proving this with the word contentment. Look at this in verse 11. He says, For I've learned in whatever situation I'm to be content. What does that word mean, to be content? Paul, in essence, is staking his whole heart motivation on this word, content, contentment. It means to be self-satisfied. 
Now that can be understood in a secular way. I mean, it's being satisfied in Christ, but I just want to make the point. It's that Paul, within his own spiritual life, was satisfied, whether the actual money came or not. The expression behind the money meant a great deal to him. But he's saying, look, you know, remember Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ and what? To die is gain? Paul was ready to die. He was, look, if he needed to starve to death for the sake of Christ under house arrest, he was ready to do, do that. He was ready to pay the ultimate sacrifice. So whether the money came or not, he wanted to make it dramatically clear that he was well content in the Lord. He was satisfied in Christ, and he had grown to that point of self-satisfaction in the Lord. So he wanted to deconstruct any motivation that he was trying to drum up more money or gain from doing the Lord's work. He was very protective of that. If you turn over to 1 Timothy, turn over to 1 Timothy 6. Paul uses the exact same word here in verse 6. 1 Timothy 6, look at verse 6. Paul says, but godliness with, same word here, contentment is great Gain, contentment, self-satisfaction, satisfaction in the Lord, being sustained in Christ. If you are godly with that contentment, you have great gain. Now the context here in 1 Timothy 6 is one where Paul is speaking to the church at Ephesus. He's speaking to Timothy, for Timothy to be the, the shepherd of Ephesus, this church. And um, there, and he's saying, look, you got some people in the church that are false teachers, they're teaching false doctrine. If you look in verse 3, they're, they're trying to drum up controversies by giving um, debatable doctrines. And these people, verse 4, are puffed up with pride and conceit and envy. And then verse 5, it says that these people in the church, these wolves who are trying to distract people from the gospel, they're depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Now look what they're doing here. Um, imagining that godliness is a means of what? Gain. You know what Paul is rebuking here? He's saying, look, there are people there who are deceptive wolves in the flock who are trying to trump up their spirituality and their ability to debate doctrine to pad their wallets. That's what Paul is rebuking here. He's saying, look, when people use religion to get money, that's wrong. That's despicable. That's a ripoff. It's, it's playing into people's affections to get them to give more money so that they'll get wealthy. It's to buy a diabolical. But, verse 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. The minister should be satisfied in Christ. Now look at verse 7. For we brought nothing into the world. We cannot take anything out of the world. And he says, but if we have food and clothing, with these we shall be, same word, content, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, in, in, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. You want your life to be ruined? Live your life believing that riches and wealth will make you happy. That's how you spiral in this life. You live for the comfort of money. You know, a lot of people that... Um, have a lot of money, when they live this way, where they're craving money, where they have the love of money in their heart, guess what happens? They worry about losing their money, right? I've got money, but oh, if I lose it, if I make a wrong step, if I make the wrong choice, oh, my life's going to fall apart and I will spiral. 
Or people who don't have money look at people who do have money and you say, oh, if I only had that much money and then they gain that much money, if I only had 10% more, 10% more, then I would be happy. This is a ruinous way to live. It's the opposite of finding your contentment in Christ. Look at verse 10. For the love of money is a root. It's like a root system that sucks you dry. It's the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. It's the heartache of wishing that you had more than you have. Well, back to Philippians. This is what Paul is protecting against. He's saying, listen, I am so happy for you as a church because you are a giving church and I want to shepherd you in that and rejoice in the fact that behind your gift is your heart that's growing in the Lord. He wants to shepherd that and affirm that. And at the same time, he wants to deconstruct and protect against any coercive um, um, signal or message that Paul would be misperceived as giving by saying, look, it's not about the money. I'm content in the Lord, but I'm so glad that you gave for your own heart's sake. He's content. Look at verse 12. He, he teases this out by saying, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. You know, I really like this word, learned. He uses it both in verse 11 and in verse 12. Learning. See that in verse 11, for I have learned in whatever situation I'm to be content. I'm, I'm to be satisfied in Christ no matter what's going on with my circumstances, highs or lows. I'm not dragged down and cratered when times get tough, and I'm also not carried away in loving the money and security that money brings when times are prosperous. He's learned something. He's learned to be stable, and I love that word learned. Because look, this is not a quick fix of the soul. This is not something that you grasp intellectually and it immediately cashes in, you know, some kind of spiritual new category in your life where you go, okay, I got it, I'm content, I'm good. That's not what Paul is doing here. He's saying that contentment is something that you grow to become. Being content. It's growing. I remember in college, you know, people would go to passages like these and, you know, the secret of being content. And I would always think, oh, I want to learn the secret. Maybe today the preacher will tell me the secret for how to be content because people would always tell me, look, you know, when I was searching for my soulmate, for my wife um, to be, I, I used to think, you know, just follow the advice of the youth pastor or whoever would say, look, if you're content in the Lord, then the Lord will bring your soulmate. You know, if you're content in the Lord, then the Lord will bring you prosperity. If you get the secret of contentment, then you'll be able to cash in with fill in the blank and you'll be happy. That's not what Paul's doing here. Paul is saying that through hardship, through difficulty, through trials, through tribulations, through life circumstances, you grow on the bumpy path of your journey of life into a state of contentment. Contentment is earned spiritually over a long period of trusting Christ. And again, this is Paul more at the end of his life. 
This is after his third missionary journey. This is after he went through the trials of shipwreck, uh, the trials of being hungry, the trials of being cold. If you were to look at 2 Corinthians 11, the trials of being beaten and whipped 40 times minus one, the trials and difficulty and labors and journeys of life that shape you and crush you and, and where you're pouring your heart out on God, that's the journey to learning to be content. That's where contentment is gained. It's not a quick fix. It's not. It's through the gauntlet of life that you learn contentment. That helped me so much to think that I don't have to arrive today or tomorrow. What does Philippians 1 6 say? That's what Jesus promises you. He who began a good work in you, you will be faithful to complete it until the day of the Lord Jesus. So are you struggling? Are you trying to be content? Are you trying to grow? Well, just rely on the fact that Jesus promises to grow contentment in your life over a long period of time. You don't have to arrive today. If you're longing for something and you want answers, just let the Lord lead you in contentment. Give your heart to him. And perhaps the way to begin that process is even giving towards the Lord's work participating in that way, sacrificing, sacrificially giving to the Lord. And he's growing you along the way. The Bible says in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This is a hard process that you come through in growing in grace. Well, Paul's talking about life here. Look at this in verse 12, how to be brought low, how to abound. I don't want to just brush over that. Listen, sometimes the hardest place to be spiritually is when the pressure is what? Off. Sometimes the best place to be spiritually is when the pressure is on. When you're walking in the spirit and you don't know exactly how certain bills are going to be paid or how needs are going to be met. And watch this, when the Lord then gives you a surprise gift that you didn't expect or a surprise blessing comes in, how wonderful is that? But how easy is it once the need is met for you to go, oh yeah, I'm good. You ever do that? You just, you forget to count your blessings. You forget to praise the Lord that that need is met, that you didn't know how it was going to be met and then the Lord meets it. That can be one of the most wonderful places in the world to be when you are utterly dependent on Christ and you're watching him meet your needs, you know, one step at a time rather than having it all paid for and you're all set and then you can just kind of relax and check out spiritually. So Paul had learned also how to trust God even when he had a lot. And if you read the book of Philemon, at that point when he's talking to Philemon about the slave Onesimus who had, who had left, who'd gone AWOL and left Philemon, he said, look, any damages that that caused you in verse 18 of Philemon, just put it on my account. So Paul had some means. He had some money at points in his ministry. Not always, though. Sometimes he was left destitute and even left almost dead in Lystra that time, and the Lord raised him up. He knows how to be brought low. Look at this. In every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I want to pick up on that word secret for a second. This is a word that's only used once in the New Testament. And I think Paul used it here uniquely and specifically to grab the attention of the crowd. It was kind of a buzzword in ancient philosophy. And it was also a buzzword in terms of mystery cult religions. 
And Paul takes this word and then applies it to the Christian life. It's kind of a weird thing to do. But in essence, uh, the mystery cults would use this word, which um, literally means initiated into, like being initiated into a mystery cult. Um, Paul used it to basically pick up on the idea that just like in cult religion, there's, there's a secret. There's something behind the scenes that, that is the mystery to giving you um, strength in your life if you join the cult. Paul is saying, look, in Christ, there is someone who's mysteriously behind the scenes giving you the power to be content no matter what's going on in your life circumstances. It's the root system that's buried beneath the earth that has the vitality of life coming up into the tree trunk that makes it green and fruitful, okay? Secondly, he's also kind of confronting with this word and using it as a play on words against the Stoic philosophers of the day, the ancient ones, like Socrates, who would say that contentment is nature's wealth. Um, Socrates and these philosophers would basically make the idea that as a person who is the next level in humanity, you are someone who is emotionless. You're stable. You know, you, you are impervious to the temptations of the culture. You, you believe that, you know, there is a God who's in control of everything, so I can just kind of check my emotions at the door and just be a superhuman. That was what ancient philosophy was teaching. It was the secret. It was the idea of Ep- Epictetus that was this philosopher of the day who would say, look, You know, let your household utensil break and then say, I don't care. Or, you know, my dog dies and you say to yourself, I don't care. Or I get hurt. I have a bodily injury happen to me and so you say, I don't care. Or you say, look, uh, you know, this relative died and you say, I don't care. It's this idea of just being sterile to the environment around you. You know, in, in today's modern self-help books, like at Barnes & Noble or, you know, bookstores or whatever or online, you can find all kinds of self-help that's kind of saying the same thing. It's saying, look, as a person, you've got circumstances that are going to get you down and come around you, and you need to be able to help yourself out of that. You need to be able to say to yourself, look, I'm going to check out, or a method, a breathing technique will help me through this, and I'll just ignore my circumstances. You see that stuff, don't you? I mean, you don't see any self-help books that say focus on Christ as the strength of your life. You see self-help books that say, look, it's like, you know, find a, a you know, sort of vaca- a vacation spot and distract yourself from your problems, and they'll all sort of drift away, or eat the right food, or, or bend your body and contort it in a way that will help you cope with the severities of life. You need to fix yourself, or escape yourself, or reward yourself in a way to get you through. That's not what Paul is talking about at all. He tells the secret, in fact, in verse 13. The secret is found in verse 13. Look at this. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Literally, I can do all things through the one who is giving me strength to do them. This is the boiled-down romance of the Christian life. 
Is it you that's working? Is it you that's getting you through? Through some sort of method or willpower or self-denial? Is that what it is? Is that the secret of the Christian life? Is that the secret of contentment? I'm willing myself to forget about my trials and discouragements. No. It's you and Jesus together moving through trials, moving through circumstances, facing utter, utterly difficult circumstances and facing times when you receive a lot and plenty. Whether you have wealth or whether you have nothing, it's you and Christ together. That's the secret of contentment. It's not a quick fix. This is something that you just conceptually grasp this morning and your life is fixed. That's not what I'm talking about. It's journeying with Christ through everything and growing stronger and stronger as you go through anything. It's being with Christ. A lot of people will rip this verse out of context and say that to be a Christian means you're Superman. You know, you can be the ultimate athlete. You can be the ultimate, um, you know, quarterback or running back. And, and you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. And you, you can score touchdowns. You know, you can walk on water in Christ. You know, and people, people blow this out of, you know, proportion. Uh, they take it out of context. It's like the golfer who is lame at golf like most of us are. And you, you stand up, you know, to... to do your drive, and you mutter or mumble to yourself, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And the golf party's listening in, and they're watching. They're going, hmm, I wonder if Christ is going to help him. And then your ball, like, you know, goes into the woods, and you make everybody an atheist, you know? Everybody is, you know, God must not be real. That's not what this is talking about at all. This is talking about living through difficult circumstances in general. This is Paul who was a very energetic, um, go-for-it missionary for the gospel who had done three missionary journeys and uh, he's stuck in jail. Who's saying, even through circumstances like these, I can be content. I can be strong in my heart because I can do this with Christ's power strengthening me. You know, I, my mother-in-law, uh, some of you have been praying for her in Virginia. She's, you know, she's got sort of a, a terminal um, outcome or, you know, doctor's sentence on her life. We don't know how much time the Lord has given her or not. I mean, many of us have relatives and, and people who've either gone through that or are presently in that situation. My mother-in-law is that, but she loves Christ. She's that kind of person who wants to be with Jesus as much as she wants to be here on earth. She's ready to go. She knows where she's going, and she knows that she loves Christ most of all. It was funny, this morning I was hearing my wife, uh, she, you know, sort of speaker phoned in and, and talked to me um, this morning about how things were going. She's in Virginia with her ailing mom, and she's with Owen, and Logan is with her. And so she, Judy, my wife, and her sister went to the grocery store. They went in, and they left um, mom in the car with Owen and my Owen is four years old he's the baby of the family and Owen looked up at her and he's sort of been sensing all that's been going on and all the chatter and talk and he looked at her and he said grandma you know I've heard that you're going to die soon but I just want you to know my dad gets the car I have no idea why he said that you know I have no idea I don't I, it's not a nice car 
But what was great to me about hearing that story, which Judy told me that story with, you know, mom in the room, is she's laughing because it's, you, she's smiling at the future as the Proverbs 31 woman would. I mean, she's ready to go. She's not clinging to things in this world. She's learned the secret of being content over life circumstances, over the long haul, through the highs and the lows. She knows what really matters, and that is Christ in her, the hope of glory. Galatians chapter 2, it, it, it gives this balance of the Christian life. 2.20, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You have John, it says the same balance, you know, John 15, where Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches says, whoever abides in me or, or clings to me as a branch would a vine, and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. This is the secret of the Christian life. It's the romance of the Christian life. Is it you that's causing yourself by force of willpower to get through something? No. It's you Instead of trying to be independent, you are completely dependent upon Christ. It's the opposite of the Stoics saying through willpower and self-determination, I'm going to cope with life. Or through pop psychological, you know, breathing techniques, I'm going to cope by fixing myself in one way or the other. It's saying I can't fix myself. All I have is Christ. That's the Christian life. It's where you're willing to cling, and over the a course of a lifetime, you learn to cling more and more because Christ's power is more and more manifest in your life. It's a paradox. Um, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he wrote this book called Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cure. We have it in the bookstore. It's a great book. I've read through it as I've uh, studied Philippians. And uh, picking up on this verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, he quotes an old country preacher um, in a funny way. He says that old preachers, they used to dialogue with each other, with themselves when they would preach to make the point. And I'm going to sort of read this through with a little bit of a southern twang because this is what southern preachers would do. It says, so this old preacher began to preach on the text in this way. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. Wait a minute, Paul. What did I hear you say? I can do all things? Paul, surely that is boasting. Surely you're just claiming for yourself that you are a superman. No, no, I can do all things. Well, the old preacher kept up the dialogue. He questioned Paul and quoted every statement made by Paul in which he says that he is the least of all the saints. You were generally so humble, Paul, but now you say, I can do all things. Haven't you started boasting? And then at last, Paul says, I can do all things through Christ. Oh, I'm sorry, said the old preacher. I beg your pardon. Paul I did not realize that there were two of you. That's the point. Paul wasn't alone in prison. Christ was with him. The gift came. He was rejoicing over that because of the heart connection. He knew this church was growing as they had been shaped by giving. He was rejoicing in that. He wasn't coercing them. He was making the case that he was completely satisfied in Christ who was in the jail with him, with the power of God that was sustaining him and growing him through that trial. It's like a blood transfusion. If you think of someone who's anemic, who's becoming lifeless, 
who's got diseased blood, where the drugs don't work because they don't have enough blood for the drugs to absorb into, and so they need a transfusion. And as the the lifeblood, the healthy blood comes into the body, the color returns to the face, and the vitality of that person's being is strengthened, and they are strong. They're not strong in and of themselves. They need the lifeblood inside to make them strong. We need Christ to be strong through life circumstances. The lows for sure and even the highs, we need to trust Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time.